Hello, and welcome to my lecture series. My name is Nick Lugo, and thank you for being here. Before we get started, I just want to give an explanation or a reminder as to why you're here and why I do these lectures in the first place. It may seem true to you that the reason to come to one of these lectures, or a lecture in general, is to learn, and you wouldn't be wrong, but it's much more than that. You're here to act. The learning part is obvious, but not the acting. Often, I, more than anybody else, know how to act, but simply just don't act. For example, it's not a groundbreaking discovery that going to the gym is important. This is something that we all know. Yet, the hardest part is, and I'll say it again, action. As you know, the lectures that I'll take you through are hero stories, and there is much to learn from them. Therefore, the first lesson to learn from these stories and these movies is a simple one, one that you already know. Heroes follow their heart. They don't think about following their heart. It is action that separates the heroes from the rest. The goal of this lecture is to facilitate thought and action, as the two are so desperately intertwined. Therefore, I make this statement that I say with absolute conviction. If this lecture series does not change the actions you take in this world, then I have failed you. This idea of action is one that I explore with incredible depth in these lectures. Finally, if you're looking for a more direct way to act, I suggest you check out my new book, Breaking Your Bad Habits in 150 Pages, A Hero's Journey. My book takes these abstract lessons and applies them directly to you and any bad habit or human weakness that you might be struggling with. I place you in the shoes of a hero and show you how to be both a thinker and a doer, all in 150 pages for those of you who don't consider themselves readers. You can find the book on Amazon by searching it or by clicking the link in this video. Now, let's get on to the lecture. Welcome back. This is lecture six of Beauty and the Beast, and this will be the final lecture. So, I'm happy you stayed along the whole way. And, well, if you haven't began watching and you're watching this on YouTube, then click above to watch the first lecture. But, let's pick up where we left off and let's finish off this movie, you know, in, a, in the best way possible. This is, this is the point where everything comes together. This is the, this is the full unity of, well, huh, they do a good job in essentially saying everything. So the point where we left off is really simple, right? It's the unity between something like, well, it's the dance, right? And the dance is really, the, the dance is really more for the beast than it is for Belle, right? Because it really shows that he's a human, right? It really shows that he has this human divine aspect to him, something that transcends the prince. And it really shows his transformation. In terms of Belle, it's it's more just a, we could say it's more of like a symbol of commitment, right? To be able to, um, well, choose this person to dance with. It's like, okay, there's something there, but it's really more for the beast. And well, now we get to sort of like the final part. This is the final part. And this is mostly for the hero, right? This is mostly going to be for the beast. But at this point, at this point, we could finally agree that the heroine and the hero are, are completely intertwined, right? They are now essentially one and everything that the beast does, sort of the hero does too. Everything that uh, Belle sort of does too. So 
what happens is we sort of I've I've sort of been neglecting this throughout the entire movie, but you know uh, I wanted to I wanted to put it all at one time. So the sort of backtrack here is that right here we have Gaston and we have his little like humble servant here, and that what he decides to do is he decides to take Maurice. Right, I'm pretty sure his name is Maurice. We'll assume that the father's name is Maurice. I'm almost positive on that. But what he does is he says, okay, take me to Belle, right? Gaston says this to Maurice, and then Maurice says something like, I would never let you marry Belle, right? Like, if clearly you're not the right guy. I don't want you to marry Belle. And then, um, okay, yes, his name is Maurice. So then Gaston, what Gaston does is he right now ties him up to a tree and says... The words, if Maurice won't give me his blessing, then he is in my way. And this is the perfect way of, first of all, developing the plot, and second of all, understanding Gaston, right? Because the question is, what is Maurice to Gaston? And the, the answer is, he's a tool, right? He's, if, we're, if we're getting back to the narrow view of the world in which, we, in which the prince used to see, we could say that Maurice was a tool to get to Bell, right? And the unfortunate reality is once you stop becoming a tool, then most likely you're going to be an obstacle. And that's that's something that Jordan Peterson really explored, but it's a it's a really strong idea, right? It's a really strong idea. I remember uh, as I was as I was listening to his lectures, there was there was something that dawned upon me. There was a la- I was walking through the grocery store and there was a ladder and it was, it was in the middle of the aisle, and I wanted to get through the aisle. And I asked myself the question. I go, okay, what is this ladder? And somebody could say, it's a ladder. But for me, I said, no, it's not a ladder. I never looked at it. I never looked at it as something that I could climb upon. I didn't really think about climbing the ladder in the grocery store. The thing that I saw it as was an obstacle in my way to get to the aisle get through the aisle, right? So the reality is when I when I sort of made my depiction of the world, I didn't even see it as for its functional use. All I saw it was, okay, this might be a tool for somebody else, but I don't really think about that. All I think of it is an obstacle that is in my way, an obstacle that, well, has nothing to do with the fact that it's a ladder. All I care about is the fact that it's in my way. And that's, that's essentially what... Um, what Gaston is thinking right here. So, so that's why he ties up Maurice, and that's why he kind of, well, getting back to it, that's why he symbolizes what the beast was, what the beast was when he was a prince, only looking at the world in terms of tools and obstacles. So what happens is Belle looks through the magic mirror, and she says, okay, First of all, the, the best part is she's given full access to the West Wing and therefore can look through the through the magic mirror, which means that, you know, she's opened him up and that, that's the symbolism of the dance. But she goes through the West Wing and she goes with the beast and she sees that her father's in some sort of turmoil. turmoil. So she says to go back and here's, we'll say, one of the most powerful points that I've seen across movies. Um, it's this idea of possession. It's this strong idea of possession. So what happens in the actual Beauty and the Beast? The Beast decides he's going to let her go, right? She was technically a slave this whole time, 
and he really relied on her, right? Because it's really smart, right? It's really smart to, to be possessive over her, logically, right? Well, one aspect of logic, you could say. It would be really smart to say, no, you're my slave, you can't leave, you're a tool, and you're going to stay here. It would be so simple for him to go and do that. And because technically at this point, she's still a slave and he decides to let her free. And the idea there is it's confusing. It's really confusing because I don't know how to think about it. I don't know how to think about it. And I'll, t I'll tell you why I've been struggling with this. And this is probably the... Something that really bothers me. So, in our culture, right, we have this idea. Well, first of all, so this this idea here, right, where the beast tries to leave, it's anti-possession, right? He says, "I am not going to possess you. You could be free on your own terms. You could follow your own heart and um, follow your own goals, and I'll always be here." Something like that, and. So therefore, we have something in this culture that runs opposite to that. And this idea is called marriage, right? Because what is marriage? Marriage is the simple idea that I take you and you take me for the rest of our lives. And it's almost as if, like, if you could just simply take that idea and turn it on, turn it on his head and say, well, if we're committing to each other for the rest of our lives, then you're my possession then I, and I'm your possession for the rest of eternity, right? Because really, isn't that what it is? Isn't that what marriage is? Aren't you really saying, okay, we are going to be together and you can't leave me, right? That's anti-beast right here because the beast is saying you're allowed to leave. But what, what marriage is saying is you can't leave. We're stuck in this together and we're going to do it. And... I don't know what to think about that. Because really, really, here's the unfortunate reality. And here's something that, well, Disney probably won't want to tell you. But something that I think is really important, you know. Humans have a natural desire. And this is beyond supported by the psychology. We have a natural desire to have sex with multiple people. Right? And have relationships with multiple people. And... The idea that we don't, right? And the, well, first of all, the idea that you could possess somebody is saying, regardless of this instinct, regardless of this desire that you have to be with someone else, you're mine. You're mine. And that's quite unfortunate. That's quite unfortunate because one of the things that That really scares me, right? And this is this is one of the things that obviously as someone who's not married and as someone who's sitting on the outside of marriage, I think everybody sits here and looks. We're like, okay, wait a second. Why is it that a little less than 50% of marriages get divorced? And then why is it that 56% of men cheat on their wives, 49% of uh, wives cheat on their husbands? And, um, oh, and there was this great, crazy, crazy stat that um, there was this one lawyer who uh, he was a divorce lawyer and he managed over 7 7000 cases and he said 
early on in his lawyer career, he found out that one of the main causes of divorce was the, quote, other man and other woman. And every in every divorce, what he'd do is he'd ask the couple, he said, is there another man or is there another woman? What is, the, what is really happening here? And <laughs> he said after 7,000 cases, he has found four cases in which there was no other man or other woman. Four divorce cases out of 7,000. And he said over... T- in the last, I think it was 20 years, he hasn't had one. He says he's always searching for the fifth, but he can never find it. And that's just something that really scares me. It says, okay, we have this individual natural impulse for, we'll say, love with multiple people, right? Like you, you can look at it as something as shallow as something like an animalistic impulse to have sex with multiple people. But I think of it as something as something... So an impulse to life, an impulse to be with other people, and an impulse to connect with other people. That's that's another way of looking at it. Both are right and both are wrong. You know, that's a, that's a... Because you can look at it from both perspectives and you're not wrong. But let's let's assume in this case that, that this is something like an impulse to life. And when you see something like that, marriage, possession is designed to squander that and say, okay, you have this desire. It doesn't matter. We've made a commitment when we've, we're set together. And in, in, well, in the case of Beauty and the Beast, what you're really saying is you can't leave. You can't go. And I don't know how to feel about that. One thing, one thing that I really wanted to bring up on this exact topic is this idea in Star Wars, right? This idea is perfectly mirrored in Star Wars. So what we have right here is, it doesn't even matter if you don't like Star Wars, don't worry, but we have something like the Beast, who's the good representation. He's the guy who decides to let go. In Star Wars, you have Anakin Skywalker, who ends up becoming Darth Vader. I'll give I'll give all the backstory, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that the people who like Beauty and the Beast are probably not the people who like Star Wars. But anyways... I'll give you the full backstory. So what you have is Anakin Skywalker is the person who turns into Darth Vader. I think that's something that you don't really need, right? So Anakin Skywalker is the hero, and um, and eventually he turns to the dark side, right? And the reason why he turns to the dark side is because of possession. So this is what he does when he tells uh, Natalie Portman. I forget what her character's name is, but... He says to her, when he's sort of like professing his love for her, he says, I'm in agony. The thought of not being with you, I can't breathe. And, well, what he's really showing is, you know, I I want you, but I also need you, and I can't be without you, and therefore I need to possess you, right? That's, That's the idea that he's really putting forth here, and... Well, that's the thing that, we'll say, turns him to the dark side. That's the thing that, that kills him. And the advice that he gets from Yoda, and Yoda's like the, I think everybody knows Yoda, but he's like the all-wise figure. He's like something like God or something like the divine presence on the world or the divine presence within him. What he says is, and this this is the way to really tie the two movies together, he says, Attachment leads to jealousy. 
The shadow of greed, that is. And then he gives him the advice, train yourself to let go. So let's kind of break that down a little bit. So he says, attachment leads to jealousy. It's like, definitely, right? Whenever, whenever you become too attached, too possessed, you become jealous, you become possessive, right? Over the other person. And he says, the shadow of greed, that is, or if you, if you want to re, reword the sentence, you could say, that is the shadow of greed. Jealousy is the shadow of greed. And, um, and what he's really saying is something like possession, something like too much attachment, right? Like making someone your slave in the case of the beast is, is greedy because you're saying you're looking at them as a tool. That's the problem. You're looking at them as somebody that only serves you, right? You're looking at them as someone, yeah, yeah, they only serve you and they only have will say connection to you. They can't have connection to anybody else. They can't. Yeah, that's good. So So now that's why I think when he decides to let her go, right? In the in the Beauty and the Beast story. And that's exactly what Yoda says, right? Train yourself to let go. And that's what the beast does. When the beast decides to let go, what he's doing here is he's seeing her for her humanity. He's saying, wait a second, you are not just a tool that serves me. You're not just a tool that serves my need for, we'll say, love. We'll go with love in, in this case because we haven't even gotten to the sexual aspect. So we'll say, you have served my need for love. You have served my basic human need for love, but your humanity supersedes that. I see you as a human more than I see you as a person who fulfills my needs. I see you as a human more than I see you as a tool. And when he tells Belle that you can leave, he's really saying, you're a human to me. And I'm willing to forego my self-interest to serve your humanity. And this is what you see when you're in a really, really good relationship. And I don't mean this in an intimate relationship. I mean this in just a good relationship with your best friend, with your family, with your friends, whatever. You know, what, what happens when you're in a really good relationship is their needs are sort of embodied within you, right? Because... You could just say that you're, uh, you're a figure of need and you're a figure of self-interest. But really, if you want to have a friend and if you do have a friend, then you're fulfilling their needs as well as them fulfilling yours. And whenever you decide to make a decision, right, their needs are also being taken into account. And if you don't do that, then you won't have any friends. But what, what you're really doing here is you're saying my self-interest lies within your self-interest and we could sort of work together to achieve a harmonious relationship, whatever that is. And sometimes I'm going to lose my own personal self-interest in, in favor for your self-interest. But because I see you as a human, because I see, because my needs and your needs are, are almost intertwined when we're together in the relationship, then... I'm willing to forgo my own self-interest. I don't see you as a tool anymore. And 
that's a really strong idea. So getting back to the marriage idea, I just, um, it seems to me that a monogamous relationship is inherently possessive. And this, this could really tie it all together because whenever you decide, and this is why in the Jedi Order, in the, in the Star Wars universe, Jedis are not allowed to get married and and I think that's the reason why. It's because when you when you possess when you, when you decide to be get into a we'll say monogamous relationship that spans for too long, spans for forever, then at some point you lose the choice, right? Because really, you know, let's say I decide to get into a monogamous relationship with somebody right now. It's like, if both of us choose that, then that's okay, right? Then, then, then that's not really a problem because, well, it's as if we both had the choice to get into the monogamous relationship and then we both said yes and therefore... That's really it. But some point along that time, some point along the forever or until death do us part along that marriage um, vow, one of the two people or both of the people are going to, we'll say, not want that monogamous relationship. There's going to be part of them that wants to break off. There's going to be part of a, them that wants to have the impulse to love someone else and the problem with these long-term monogamous relationships, and let me clarify, so that means I think maybe the long-term monogamous relationships, not the not the regular monogamous relationships, the long-term monogamous relationships, it seems almost as if their choice has been squandered. They say, okay, because I am now a possession of the other person, because we are now maybe possessions of each other or possessions of the relationship, then I'm not allowed to leave and I'm stuck. And even though I have this natural impulse to love, I have this natural impulse to be with someone, somebody else, I can't. I can't. So that's why... Maybe I won't even go as so far to say that long-term monogamous relationships are bad. I'll say they are possessive and and as a result you can take with that what you will. So um So the beast decides to let her go and yes, right? This means that he's not self-interested anymore. His needs and her needs are almost intertwined and he has recognized her humanity. So Belle comes back and um, and she finds that Gaston has decided to, you know, here's just a bunch of plot points. He decides to uh, essentially gaslight Maurice and just say, you know, you're crazy. You know, all the things that you thought you saw, they're completely wrong. Don't even, don't even think that you're right and, um, and you're going to some mental institution. So he does that um, Belle comes in to save her, and he says, lock her up too. You know, she's an obstacle now too, so I really don't want to deal with it. And now we get to the real point, right? Now we get to the... Just beautiful nature 
of the of the movie. Like I think this is why I was drawn to it so much. It's such a such a powerful powerful moment here where the beast has to fight Gaston and the way I like to phrase it and I, I know I've phrased it uh, before but I like to think of this as the potential Gaston versus Gaston that's a good way of looking at it so you have Gaston who's Gaston and you have potential Gaston facing Gaston and when I say potential Gaston I mean the person who could have been Gaston he you imagine the prince all the way back here right in the beginning of this movie there are two paths where he could have gone we'll think of like the Robert Frost poem right there uh, I went in a wood oh my god why am I forgetting it there were two roads in a wood and I I took the road I took the path less traveled by, and that has made all the difference, right? So think about that. You have something like path A that he could have gone on was the path of Gaston. He could have remained the prince forever. And then path B is, well, Beauty and the Beast, right? Becoming a beast and then eventually becoming a prince again and um, becoming a good prince. And so what is he doing here? Right. What? So we'll say potential Gaston is going to be path A and Beast is going to be path B. Hero is going to be path B. And what he does when he's fighting Gaston, and I think this is, this is the perfect view of the hero myth, is you're fighting off path B. Right. So he kills Gaston. Right. He, Jesus. Like, look, he's choking him right here. And, um, and yeah, he eventually dies. So what does it mean when Gaston dies and the beast is the one to kill him? What it means is that path A dies. Potential Gas or Gaston, right? The Gaston within him, the the evil, self-interested person who only sees the world as tools. The person that he once was is now dead within him. And he was the one to kill and the beast was the one to kill him. So therefore, he is officially chosen path B. And this is something that we saw throughout Belle, right? I, I explained the same idea with Belle with the idea of Pan, right? Where she says, I can't go back to my childhood. I can't be Peter Pan anymore. I can't be all potential. I need to go on a path. And this is just the moment where the beast does the same thing that Belle has previously did. And I think one of the things that you'll probably, you've probably noticed throughout this entire story is that the hero's journey and the heroine's journey are very, very similar. Like they go through the same psychological processes. And, well, there's something to be said about that. There's something to be said about that. It's, it's as almost if you could extract the hero and the heroine ideas and then say, now we have understood the underlying human framework for how to develop yourself. And well, that's pretty useful. Right? That's, that's really, really useful. And I think Joseph Campbell did a pretty good job when he said, when he, when he brought in something like the hero's journey, because the hero's journey is just a really concise framework. It definitely could be expanded upon, but I think it's a really concise framework for, okay, this is this is the fundamental way that humans grow, and well, that's why I think we watch movies, right? That's why we watch. That's why we watch movies in the first place. It's like, okay, I don't know. I'm a 15 year old boy, let's say, who really doesn't know what I 
what I want to do in life or who I want to be. Hmm. Now I just watched Iron Man. I just watched, I don't know, Batman. And I just watched all these, all these different hero movies. It's like before I was clueless, before I had no idea who I wanted to be. Now I know what I'm supposed to be. Now I have an ideal. Now I have somebody that I can emulate. And well, that's why we have hero stories in the first place. So it's like, okay, we got that. So now let's get to the end. And the end is, is you know, just traditional hero, hero idea, right? So what happens is the beast dies. Why does the beast die? The beast dies because he is no longer, let's bring it back up to here, he is no longer inadequate. He is now adequate. So he has shed off the idea of the beast. So we'll say the, we'll say he went from the prince, right? Somebody who was, we'll say ignorant and spoiled to a beast, which is somebody who has completely transcended the ordinary reality but was inadequate in that ordinary reality, right? And now, because he is adequate in that non-ordinary reality, he sheds his idea of the beast. Very simple. So he dies, and then he resurrects as a prince, right? He resurrects in the same body that he was in before, just more developed. And and there you go. So they, they kiss, and it's, and it's all well and good. What ends, so so now we could say, okay, he resurrects. What happens after the resurrection in the hero's journey? The transformation. And here is the fundamental point. Here is the thing that we've been building up to this entire time. And here it is. What does he do? He hugs. So the, so the tools, the little personalities within himself, they transform back into humans and he hugs them. He unites with them, and he sees them as people. That's the meaning. That's the final, we'll say, transformation within this, within this story. You know, the clock and the the clock and the lamp and the and Mrs. Potts and all of these characters. You know, Chip. All of these characters, instead of becoming tools, instead of becoming objects in which he could use his self-interest. They manifest, well, we'll say they were objects that, they, that he could use for his own self-interest to him, right? That's what they were. They were literally, they manifested themselves as tools. Now he finally sees them for their humanity. And that transformation is, an, is a completely internal transformation. It's, it's all about how he sees the world. So before he saw them as tools, now he sees them as people. And... So that's that's the tools way of looking at it. The the second way of looking at it is is a way that is a little bit more profound. So we got to get to the personalities idea. So the personalities idea is that you know Mrs. Potts was the wisdom within him, and Lumiere was the order within him, and they were completely they were dissociated from his personality, and that's why as a prince he was a completely inadequate. We'll say spoiled prick. That's the way they they depicted him. Now, well, we could say okay. So he was a he was a spoiled prick, and 
he was, he was completely dissociated from his personalities. By the time that he became a beast, the only thing that he did was realize and become conscious of the fact that he was dissociated from his personalities. What is the meaning of them uniting, of them coming together? The idea is a really, really beautiful idea. It's something like they become integrated within him. They become a part of him. And, and they develop, right? They, they completely, they, they go from little insignificant antiques on his shelf to parts of him. And it's a really, really strong idea, you know? Well, I'll, I'll explain it in the framework of a different movie. And this movie is a, is a movie that I'm sure you've heard of, and this is a movie that everybody's heard of. It's Alice, uh, not Alice in Wonderland, The Wizard of Oz, right? The Wizard of Oz. What is The Wizard of Oz fundamentally? You have, well, it's personalities, right? It's, it's the same exact idea. You take a, a young girl who needs to mature, and she goes down into her own psyche, right? The entire movie's a dream, and she finds all these personalities. She finds all these characters, right? You have you have Courage, and you have Scarecrow, and you have, you know, all of these characters represent something. And then finally, they unite together, and she, she does some sort of act at the end, right? The hero's act, or, yeah, this, it's a hero story, so it's a hero's act where, um, where she embodies courage, right? She embodies, um, what was the scarecrow again? Fear? I'm not sure, but she embodies all of them, and um, and they become part of her. I think I think this is this is a universal idea, and this is really the best way of of conceptualizing it because it's so relevant, it's so true in your own life. Like, really think about it. Whenever you read a book, right? We'll go with a book, for an example. Whenever you read a book, let's say you read, what books do I have here? We'll go with this book. This is a really great book. So whenever I read this book, right, it's called Animal Farm by George Orwell. Great book, okay? It says if, well, what is what am I hoping by this? I'm hoping that I could extract the information from this book right? That was once dissociated from me. It once wasn't part of my consciousness, but I'm going to take this information and I'm going to integrate it into my model of the world. And I'm going to integrate it into my knowledge base, right? So we'll, we'll take that step by step. Take the information, I read it, I integrate it into my knowledge base, and then hopefully it updates my model of the world. Very simple idea. The next step after model of the world is you could say, and this, this is more of a spiritual idea, but the idea is something like I could integrate the spirit of Animal Farm into my personality. I could integrate. So, so the idea behind Animal Farm is something like beware of, be cautious of dictatorship within a community, right? Be, be, this is how dictatorships develop. Well, hopefully, if I'm reading it correctly, then when I'm informed, and I think that this is a book that is 
worthwhile, and so long as I think this book is worthwhile, I integrate this cautiousness into my personality. So not only does it update my model of the world, right, that's one step, the next step is it operates the, we'll say, personalities that I exhibit. It, it changes the, the way in which I behave. And because really, if, if it changes your model of the world, it only does a little bit. It only, it only changes your, your perception. It doesn't change the actual action that you take in the world. And that's something that we've established. Your action is something that matters. And well, if it changes your model of the world, hopefully, and if you're doing it right, then it's changing your action. It becomes part of your personalities and strengthens, we'll say, the personality of cautiousness or more, more, something more like vigilance. Vigilance is probably better. And well, that's exactly what this is doing. And, and hopefully, you know, this is, this is something that I hope you take from this lecture, right? That's exactly what you're doing in this lecture. You're taking the raw information that I give you and you're first of all, ingesting it, then thinking about it, then saying, okay, I'm hopefully going to look at the world from a less self-interested viewpoint and well, whatever you want to take out of this. And then hopefully you're going to say, this is going to help my behavior. This is going to influence my personality. And, and that's exactly what the beast does here. And that's exactly what this represents. He hugs the, par per the personalities. And finally, he takes these personalities. He takes the order, right? And Lumiere, which is something like passion and the wisdom of Mrs. Potts. And he integrates them into himself. So now if you were to describe the, the reborn prince, it you would say he's somebody who's orderly, somebody who's passionate, somebody who's wise, somebody who blah, 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 and, and has all the characteristics, has all the personalities of these previously dissociated personalities. So that's the meaning of that. And I think that's a, that's a really great way to end it, right? That's a really great way to end it. Hopefully, at the end of this lecture, you have updated your, you have taken the knowledge that I've given you, updated your model of the world, and hopefully it's given you some sort of influence on your behavior and therefore some sort of influence on the personalities that you exhibit in the world. Some sort of influence on maybe, from a more basic sense, the characteristics that you embody. Because, well, prince in this case has chosen to embody something that resembles a humanistic view of the world as well as all of the positive personalities that the that the that the antiques had uh, exhibited so I guess that is the end that is the end so thank you for coming along for Beauty and the Beast, and um, also, I hope you read my book. This book is, um, is a book that I published very recently, and it's called Break Your Bad Habits in 150 Pages, A Hero's Journey, and well, this is the exact idea. I took all the ideas from these movies, and I essentially boiled them down into a book, and I explained to you, if you're struggling with bad habits, if you're struggling with any sort of, we'll say, self-control problem, then I hope that you could find my book in the link below and, and read it if you're interested, if you're interested in my ideas. So thank you, and thank you for watching Beauty and the Beast.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, please subscribe. Determination, all these all these heroic qualities in, in Batman, the people who didn't establish these, if they try to take down something like the Joker, then they would completely fail. They would be completely screwed. And um, well, that's a good representation of it. That's something that I really, really... Um, that I really, really like because what we're going to go through is we're going to go through the entire path of maybe enlightenment or the entire path of, we'll say, heroism, you know, or if we're going to take this into a, into a real life example, you know, the entire path of growing yourself, you know, like mastering whatever goals you want to achieve, you know, um, and just being the person that you want to be, you know, which is, well, maybe maybe the fundamental goal of of humanity, right, or, or individualism within humanity to be the person that that you strive to be. So along this path, you're gonna you're gonna encounter something like the Joker, right? Along along your path to success, you're gonna encounter something like the Joker, and you gotta learn how to defeat something like that because, well, it's it's not that obvious because that's where most people fail. Right? Most people don't fail in, we'll say, maybe the first hero's journey, which is getting to the gym, right? saying, ah, oh, man, I haven't worked out in a while. I'm just going to go to the gym and work out. You know, And most people succeed in that. Most people make it through, we'll say, the first two weeks, and they, they really succeed. And, um, and kudos. Like, that's really awesome. You know, Like you set your New Year's resolution, and... Um, and you start going to the gym. You start taking action. That's a hero's journey in and of itself, right? But what do you? What must you end up facing? You must face something like the Joker. You must face this destruction instinct that um that is ready to absolutely destroy you, right? It's it's ready to destroy all the progress that you've gotten so far. That's a good way of looking at it. Destroy all the progress that you've gotten so far and all the rules that you've established, all the structures, all the principles that you've established. You have somebody who's ready to take that down completely. And um, well, that's why we have the Joker. So, well, that is lecture one. We will be exploring that in the next lectures. Okay. So now I am tasked with trying to understand Harvey Dent. And I think I actually have a problem with Harvey Dent. I actually he's he's not the easiest to explain just simply based off the fact that he is he ends up becoming a villain, right? Like like what is it first of all, right? Let's start with the basic premise that this all makes sense, right? I think I think this is the first premise you got to start with. He becomes a villain, and we could actually understand why, right? Like this story follows a logical flow, and that's why we like the Dark Knight, you know. And um, if it didn't, we probably wouldn't like the Dark Knight. And because Harvey Dent ends up becoming a villain, one thing that that's key to key to understand is that okay, this idea of Harvey Dent becoming a villain actually makes sense in reality, right? Like this actually happens and there's actually the potential that this could happen to you, right? Because this story makes sense. So that's, that's the first start. That's the first part, right? So when we look at someone like Harvey Dent, we got to say, okay, 
he ends up becoming a villain, and there's some reason why, and this reason actually, um, there's actually a reason behind it. Like, there's actually an explanation as to why some people turn evil, and I think that's a, man, I mean, that's a great, that's a great, great, um, thing to explore. It's like, okay, we see this idea that there are evil people in our society, but how did they become evil? How could you prevent yourself from becoming that, you know? And we don't often see this. We, we often see, you know, villains like the Joker or something like the Joker where they start off as the villain and they end as the villain. You don't really, you don't really see the, the transformation, but, but with Harvey Dent, they do a really good job here. And well, if we're going to place him in a box, so the, if we're going to place him in a box, right, just to understand him, then we'll say that he's the White Knight, right, obviously, and um, and he's full of certainty, right? This is his thing that I think is the reason, it's the reason for his success, and it's also the reason for his downfall. When you see something like Harvey Dent having this coin, right, and this coin, obviously, you flip it on both sides, and it has heads on both sides, and well, you could say that he's a one-sided character, you know? He's he's one-sided in that he only does good and there's no evil that exists within him. Right? Do you see do you see do you, do you understand like okay, maybe I could understand where this falls off the rails because it starts out with this character who's obviously, you know, a very good uh what is he? District attorney? head prosecutor one of them right he obviously prosecutes he, he's gonna be dealing with the prosecution of the mob so obviously taking down the bad guys and um and well he's all good and well if you watch the last lecture right like the question that we're gonna be asking ourselves is you know can someone be all good is is that does that type of person exist and and how how could how could such a person exist? It doesn't seem obvious to me that that the answer is yes. It doesn't seem obvious to me because you know. Um, well, let's take let's take the idea of Harvey Dent, and let's apply it to essentially. I'm not gonna say every popular guy, most popular guys that exist out there, you know. Lawyers, um, politicians, celebrities, executives, right? There's this giant problem of um, sexual misconduct, right? You recently, you know, as I'm speaking, like Andrew Cuomo is getting absolutely crushed for this, right? A politician. And, you know, the reason why I bring up Andrew Cuomo is because I actually, I think, I think he's the perfect example. I think he's the perfect, perfect example. You have someone like Andrew Cuomo, and I really liked Andrew Cuomo. Like, I really, really liked him, and... You know, um, during COVID, he was, he was a very, very strong figure. Like, he was always, he was a strong, strong leader. And he was the representation of the good king. You know, somebody who's going to lead and who's going to lead correctly. And we could say that, we could say that Harvey Dent something like that. The representation of the good king. And, well, what happens, right? The problem is that... And this this is this is why I'm skeptical of essentially everybody who becomes famous, right? Or every politician. 
The problem is that they're only showing you one part of their self, right? They're only showing you the part of themselves that they want you to see, right? Because they have, you imagine, you know, you know, you look at yourself and you say, okay, is this politician like me? And you'd hope that, you know, the, the common denominator between you and the politician is that you're both human, right? And this difficult fact that we're human really will say comes with this this problem right that we're so damn complex right we have this part of us like let's not disagree with this with this right we have this harvey Dent part of us the part of us that wants to be um a hero right socially loved um always doing the right thing sort of like the representation of a of a good person right we'll say that someone who's good in action as well as intention right and that's that's Harvey Dent, right? But then we also have this other part of us, right? And, well, <laughs> this part of us is the the reason why we're so complex, right? We have this much, you know, maybe, maybe this part of us that desires to be monstrous, right? Maybe disagree, be aggressive, um, not f- be responsible, right? Maybe the type that, you know, there's one element that I that I think is really, really interesting and a lot more relatable is this Garfield part of us, right? Like I call it the Garfield part of us. Imagine you have the hero part of you that really wants to go this way, but then you have the part of you that says, but you could just spend two hours watching some TV because that feels good. You know, like you, you do have that part of you and that part exists. And well, those, those two parts of you are constantly coming in battle. So the problem, right, and, and we'll say this is universal, right? Everybody has to fight through this, and everyone has to fight through essentially everything that the Joker represents. The Joker represents um, resistance, right, which could be, yeah, something like the jo- uh, something like Garfield. But it also can be something like anger, aggression, resentment, bitterness, right? Like there are all these potential personalities within you, and, you know, we're hoping that the Harvey Dent within you wins out. So, so that's the problem with Harvey Dent. The problem with Harvey Dent is that he's one-sided, right? There's there's the good part of him, and then there's the good part of him, right? There's heads and tails, but it's really heads and heads, and there's only good parts of him. And the real problem with that is that he... Well, that makes him naive, right? That's the problem, right? The problem is... He's ignorant about the Joker part of himself. Or, yeah, yeah, we'll go with that, right? He's ignorant about the destruction, the pain, and the, we'll say, evil that lies within him. And, but we could say that he was never this guy, right? This guy, right? This guy who has two sides of the same coin, right? Two heads on his coin is not the full representation of Harvey Dent. It's only the part of him that he's discovered. It's only the part of him that he knows so far. He hasn't even confronted his, we'll say, Joker part of him, right? And well, that's that's the problem with Andrew Cuomo, right? So you have someone like Andrew Cuomo and he's he was the white knight of We'll say New York City, and I'm from New Jersey, so New Jersey during COVID, right? Everybody loved him, and everybody thought he was doing such a tremendous job. But the problem is you only see one side of him, right? You imagine that, well, maybe this Joker part of Andrew Cuomo was obviously like sexual misconduct, 
something like that, right? And um, well, it's it's proven by by if you were to take a man, right, and put him under a MRI scanner, right, and then show him pornographic images, right, of of women. The thing that you're going to see is you imagine that we have this animal brain, right? That's like the core of our fundamental motivations. And then on top of it, we have the human brain, right? And it's, it's a super simple thing. It's like if your human brain lights up, then you're gonna, probably going to think with more logic, reason, all of these things, right? But if your animal brain lights up, you are essentially acting the same thing as a monkey. Usually what happens when you... Um, when you act or do anything is that both of them light up. So it's sort of like the, there's the mediation between, between the two parts, your animal brain and your human brain. And, you know, both of them are important, right? Imagine that you didn't, if you didn't have your animal brain, you'd never fall in love or you'd never have any desire to meet people whatsoever. Right. And you could see that by you cut off, you, you essentially get rid of the dopamine within a, a, a mouse, right. Or, well, dopamine was one and testosterone was the other. And what was the other one? The hippocampus, right? So these are all parts of the of the animal brain, right? That we share with mice. If you cut off any of those, we'll say animalistic impulses, the, the mouse would just sit there and do nothing because they have no motivations whatsoever. So you have the animal side and then you have the human side. If you were to show a male, and this is specific with men, you show a male pornographic images, only the animal brain lights up. Only. There's no part of the logical, rational part of our brain that lights up. And, and the problem with that, and this is something that I find incredibly unfortunate for men, is that um, we are essentially monkeys when it comes to sex, right? That is, that is the essential problem. This is why you have this entire Me Too movement. And this is why, you know, you have inhumane acts of rape that have taken across all of history and you want, you ask the question why do men do some awful things sexually and the answer is because because we're essentially just walking monkeys when it comes to sex women they're a little bit different they have a little part of their their human brain their cortex lights up so now you have this essential problem of we'll, we'll take it in the in the guise of something like andrew cuomo it's like he has he, he only showed us his the the good side of him. He only showed us the the good side of his coin, we'll say. But there was another part of him that, that we didn't want to see. And, well, then he never even showed us. And that, that's why, you know, I'm always suspicious of the people, you know. That's why I'm always suspicious of the self-help type of people. And I'm included in that category, you know. So um, the problem is that if someone says that, I have all the answers. It's like, no, it's only the answers that they're trying to show you, right? And God, it's like, try to meet someone who isn't flawed. That's that's a good way of looking at it. It's like, everybody's flawed. It's just a matter of whether or not you want to show someone your flaws. And and this is this is true. Like, you do this too. It's not something that that is that is only for the people at the top. You know, imagine you go and you meet a stranger. You're not going to start telling them about your problems right away. You're not going to start telling them about your flaws. I did this... I did this um, little social experiment with a, with a group of people that I was talking to. I asked them all. I said, you know, we didn't we knew each other a little bit, but we didn't we didn't really know each other that well. And I asked them the question. I go, is anybody willing to stand up and tell me your deepest darkest secret? Right, the thing that you don't tell your best friends, the thing that you don't tell your family, the thing that you don't tell your intimate partner. Right, like, are you willing to share that with the group right now? And obviously, 
the answer was no, right? And I think I think that's implicit in the way that we um, in the way that we talk to strangers. It's like we we like to stick with these surface level conversations, and it's a little even when even when we dive deeper, we're not diving deeper into those deep, you know, dark corners of ourselves. And well, the problem is right. The problem with that is that you'd be showing someone the darkest side of your coin. Right, you'd be showing someone the joke or part of you, and you really don't want people to see that. So that's 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 the representation of Harvey Dent, right? The representation of Harvey Dent is that he's only showing us the part of him that that he wants us to see, and and it's almost childish, right? This is this is why it's a little difficult to understand him. It's almost childish because that's what children do. Right, children. If you watch Batman Begins, it's the same idea. It's like children are incredibly naive because they don't really, because they don't really understand the darker parts of the world, right? Because I mean, you imagine you're a kid and you're eight years old, and you know you have no idea that maybe you know that people die, but you don't you don't understand the degree to 